Welcome to Energy Currents. I'm your host Zhang. In today's episode, I invite Professor Marina Zhang to discuss a compelling issue: why the Western wealthy economies are restructuring the supply chains in the low-carbon energy sector, and this grand policy's medium and the long-term impact on energy transition and international technology collaboration. Dr. Marina Zhang, welcome to Energy Current. Hi. Thank you for having me.、Uh, before our discussion, I would like to introduce、uh, Dr. Marina Zhang. She is an associate professor at the Australia-China Relations Institute at the University of Technology, Sydney. Marina holds a PhD from Australian National University. Her research interests cover China's innovation policy and the practice, latecomers catch-up, emerging and disruptive technologies, and network effect in digital. Transformation. She focuses on the industries such as semiconductors,、uh, biotechnology, and、uh, biopharmaceuticals, and the clean energy transition. She is the author of the three books. The latest one was、uh, "Demystifying China's Innovation Machine: Chaotic Order." The, the title is quite interesting. This book、uh, was co-authored with Mark、uh, Dodgson and David Gan, and published by、uh, Oxford University Press in 2022. So, while the world entered a deglobalization era and the relations between China and the U.S. is becoming worse, policymakers from many countries prioritize de-risking the supply chains and diversifying trading activities, such as increasing the security of the critical minerals supply, which relates to wind, solar energy, and the batteries of electric vehicles. I think these big changes are quite evident. First, the American Inflation Reduction Act、uh, (IRA) in short, enacted last year, has the domestic manufacturing requirements for the low-carbon energy products and the electric vehicles. Second,、uh, last month in Japan, the G7 Hiroshima Summit 2023 issued the G7 leaders' statement. In economic resilience and economic security, clearly this is a move to strengthen collective policy and cooperation on securing more resilient supply chains. So, Marina, do you think in the low carbon energy sector we are seeing an inevitable trend, a global scale supply chain restructuring? Yes.、Uh, first of all, thank you for the introduction.、Uh, yes, I totally agree with you.、Uh, with the、uh, escalating tensions between the United States and China, and、um, and、uh, increasing nationalism, protectionism、uh, among the developed countries,、uh, we can see、uh, in their industrial policies、uh, in the in the U.S. and in the EU countries, critical minerals have become a new battlefield for the.、Um, Great rivalry between U.S. and China, so this change will definitely lead to、uh, disruptions. Maybe restructuring of supply chains of critical minerals, and I use lithium as example. Lithium has become a critical element and also strategic resource、uh, for great power、uh, competition. So while there there is plenty、um, lithium supplies. In the world, in nature reserves, lithium supply chain. Well, the 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 fight to control the lithium、uh, supply chain has become 
some, in my view, sometimes can lead to destructions of the supply chains. Yeah, I think uh, you just mentioned very important uh, uh, component of the renewable energy, lithium. But I want to ask you, in, in this case, how do you assess the cost, the benefits of this transition? A very good question. Well, recently um, I read an uh, analysis piece um, in Nature, so which talks about life cycle of um, uh, clean energy transitions. Put this way, uh, lithium, well, of course, we know, as you just mentioned, powers clean energy transitions, and um, first of all, it powers electric vehicles, and also uh, used in, in other clean energy technologies, such as wind, solar, and so on. However, the production of lithium itself is energy intensive. So the, the, the point what I want to say is, well, as argued in the article um, published by, the, by Nature, that um, production of lithium actually is not so energy effective. So China has actually spent the last uh, 10 years uh, to develop a leading edge technologies uh, in not just um, uh, lithium production, but also waste management. As you know, for example, uh, Australian is uh, the major lithium product country in the world, so which contributes over 50% of the lithium production. So, but Australian doesn't really have um, lithium processing facilities and waste management facilities um, at, the, at the moment. So, in fact, Australian export lithium oil, uh, that's kind of um, um, a product extracted from lithium mines and after the cleaning, after, you know, get rid of all the, uh, all the other elements, just uh, rocks and ex export that rocks to China for, for, for processing. So less than 10% of the lithium ions actually can be transformed into battery grade uh, lithium uh, compounds. So 90%, over 90% actually needs a specialized a technology waste management facilities to trade before it's, it can be uh, released to the, to the nature. So this is huge and uh, hidden in environmental costs we often forget. So the, 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 the struggle or the competition to control lithium supply chain will sometimes, well, in, unintentionally lead to a kind of, a, is a term called a security dilemma. So countries, they fear that our opponent will have more. So therefore I need more. And this will escalate into a spiral out of control. So in the end, we I'm just worried that this competition for control of lithium supply chain will lead to uh, more carbon emissions. So that is totally different from our original ideas achieving decarbonization goals. Yeah, that's very interesting conclusion uh, from your analysis. Uh... If we follow the, the rationale behind the, the international efforts from the G7, other OECD member states, are they trying to diversify, not only make sure the supply chains global level secure and resilient, but also benefit the energy transition. One of the major factors about uh, making energy transition more smoothly is to reduce the carbon emission. But I think there is a dilemma between your analysis and also uh, what are we seeing? Because on the one hand, China is a big role making the low carbon technology affordable, less expensive year after year, decade after decade. It has been happening in solar, wind, and electric vehicles. But China pay a lot of the external cost. 
ecological, environmental, even social just cost in order to taking a lead and uh, to dominate in this supply chain. This is a, a kind of the just transition factor. Uh, this is one thing. The other thing is that because you mentioned about Australian case, if Australian want to process more lithium domestically, is that also not good to uh, reduce the carbon emission? Because if you transport a lot of the lithium source far away from Australia to China, it's very uh, transport uh, intensive, energy intensive. So I think when you talk about these two actors, first, they want to increase the social and environmental uh, standards. If you produce in more value and standard-based countries like uh, developed countries, of course, the cost is getting higher. But maybe this is uh, something America and other countries want to pursue, particularly in IRA, because in the IRA, countries who can supply the low-carbon technology to the U.S. have to enjoy the uh, subsidies from the IRA, have to be the trading partners with U.S. Of course, China is not included. So what I want to uh, specifically ask is that if we see the transforming or the restructuring is happening, do you think the IRA and other European Union green transition or green strategy can really uh, help uh, make the global supply chain more resilient? Because the high dependence on China, it seems, seems that it's not really resilient according to the historical experience. Well, it's a good question. Resilience, supply resilience, it's all depending on from whose angle. I mean, supply chain, the fundamental uh, theory behind the supply chain, global supply chain, is interdependency. So when China dominates the most of the uh, um, components on the supply chain, so let's say lithium processing, battery components manufacturing, and uh, lithium ion battery making, but China has its own vulnerabilities because China relies on imports of lithium products um, from Australian, from lithium triangle in, in, in South America. So while China can potentially utilize its dominance in lithium supply chain in the middle and downstream components, the other countries actually can work against China to use this choke point strategy against China from exporting the lithium products to China. So this is a kind of a game theory. In the end, what, I mean, you mentioned uh, transportation is also energy uh, intensive. Actually, some calculations have been made, even including uh, transportation costs. And uh, having lithium processed in China is still most, more cost effective. The reason is China has actually uh, been driven by three goals. Well, first of all, to secure its, its energy supply. As you know, China relies on energy supply for oil, for other natural resources quite, for quite some time. So China has actually quietly developed, enduring a lot of environmental and, and economic costs to develop this, you, you, can say, you can say, affordable clean energy supplies. So this is from China's supply, China's perspective, China relies on the global supply for lithium and China by adding more value in the downstream of lithium supply chains and supply clean energy solutions to the world and is resilient. But of course, this resilience is not so for countries that relies on 
China dominated lithium supplies. So therefore, they want to increase resilience of supply chains. By increasing resilience, that means you need to have a repetition, you need to have a redundancy. And that is actually away from the original idea of decarbonization goals, because redundancy means extra. Extra means waste. And given that decarbonization goals and the pressure of time. So we need to take actions now, not down the track 10 years later, 20 years later, but no other countries actually have such facilities or technologies to process the required lithium to power clean energy transition, Australia included. I mean, during the G7 uh, summit in Japan recently, uh, both country heads, US and Australia, they agreed that if Australia establish lithium processing facilities onshore in Australia, the companies actually can benefit from industrial subsidies from the US. Well, sounds great, right? But the companies in the US, actually the, in, in Australia, lithium miners, actually they don't quite agree with this one. Not because that um, they will produce lithium that at much higher costs, um, economic cost, environmental cost, which will not have competitiveness in the global market. But most importantly, those Australian miners, they feel actually they are cornered by the governments to side with the US-led so-called critical supply appliance a partnership. Australia is, um, is, is a rich country in its nature endowment and you name it, most critical um, elements you can find in Australia. But Australia is an extremely small country compared to China and its neighbors in, in, in Asia in population. So Australia simply just doesn't have the, uh, the, the, the manpower to build the downstream processing more value-added supply chains in all those mineral supplies. So Australia needs to work with investors these downstream countries which can provide processing facilities. But this is, this is easy, set than, easy set than done. The reason is because uh, international business is not a kind of a, a good old days of hyper-globalization where, well, um, comparative advantages of countries are the first priorities in building supply chain interdependency. Today, uh, political values and your ideological identities are the major concerns in international business. So for example, Chinese investment has substantially declined since 2017. So China's outward foreign investment actually peaked in 2016. And since then it's declined. And it, this is especially true in China because most of Chinese foreign direct investments before uh, was in the mineral, in the, in the mining industry. So which now is largely closed to Chinese investors. So, so despite the fact that most Chinese investors nowadays are private business, they are collectively considered still as red China. So this is, uh, this is not really very um, constructive in solving the problems of um, climate change or the, uh, the fight against climate change. I understand in weapons, so in, in critical technologies, I mean, political issues are more important, but 
wait a minute, we are fighting against time in terms of climate change, but we're still divided by geopolitical, by political values. This is uh, really absurd. Yeah, I think this is a reality. We agree that it's a post-hyper-globalization era, and uh, we have been experiencing so many uh, events, uh, episodes, one after another, from COVID to the uh, de debates between Australia and China regarding the independent uh, investigation of the source of the COVID and the uh, treating disruption uh, between two countries and even some national security about the sub submarine, nuclear submarine technology transfer between Australia and the UK and the US. I know China is definitely not happy with all this kind of happening, but it's reality. It's a, uh, it's kind of we have to accept uh, the wind is changing, but under this wind, when people talk about the climate change, of course, it's a global challenge. The best scenario is that global collaboration with strong level, the high level of trust, but it's not the case anymore. The case is that competition, yeah, competition and uh, collaboration. If we stand uh, at the position of the Australia government, What's the future's energy transition strategy? For example, I heard that uh, some people say maybe Australia need to build up more connection with South Korea, with Japan, those major economies in the Asia Pacific. Of course, of the United States is the, uh, the most important partner. But by working with them in the more uh, interacted uh, relationships, they, uh, this might fill the gap left by China. Do you think this is a, uh, achievable, it's a doable in the future if we cannot gain back uh, the trust between Australia and China? What about other big economies in, in the region? I totally agree with you. Agree with you. First, first of all, uh, let's say, well, the trust and rules-based world order uh, are diminishing. I mean, this is not just a cost uh, by what China has done, and it's also caused by what the US has done. So basically, there's no trust, well, very little trust between the two political blocs. So for Australian, and uh, um, I think it's it's feasible, of course, it's feasible. It's just at what cost um, the, 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 the plan can be implemented. So an alternative supply chain of lithium or any other uh, critical minerals can be built. I mean, the, this is a so-called critical mineral uh, partnership led by the US. So all like-minded uh, countries uh, would be invited to join this, to join, to participate in this partnership. China, of course, is excluded, excluded. And uh, they will provide an alternative supply chain for those critical minerals, lithium included. So which we may not provide, I mean, the, the bulk of, uh, of supplies, but in case of any major disruptions, that platform, that supply chain can work. So supply chain resilience is basically under the condition that um, in case, in, in, in the worst case scenario, you can actually provide alternatives. So that's, that's, that's of course possible, but still they need um, partners in countries, in less developed countries in Asia, for example, Indonesia um, and India, maybe they can uh, provide manpower and, um, and land and facilities. But Currently, because of China's 
uh, absolute dominance uh, in the midstream and downstream uh, components on the supply chain. It's very difficult to, to, to replace China. The, the, the point is, um, the, the negative effect is poor countries, the less developed countries will have to pay more for their clean energy. Yeah, I think to some extent, I might consider my opinion about whether the uh, latecomer like Australia and other like-minded countries can catch up on the uh, critical mineral supply chain uh, structuring. Because, you know, when China is uh, entering into the middle-income country, when China's mm -hmm. population is declining, when the economy is uh, slowing down, I wonder when the international investment is leaving. So I don't think China is still in a very good shape to keep it very cost-effective uh, capacity. So maybe <laughs> the time, the years that other countries would catch up with China's level, not that uh, long. Uh, it, this is just kind of uh, a projection. Uh, but I want to come back to the Australian position because uh, in early 2023, I think in March, at the East Asia Forum, you published uh, uh, an analysis titled The Highly Charged Geopolitics of Lithium. A quote, I quote here, Australia is entangled in the superpower competition between China and the United States over the control of the lithium, end quote. But just a couple months later, on 2nd May 2023, a new story from New York Times I also remember you was also um, quoted in that news story that Australia plans to build up its own capacity of processing lithium and even producing batteries for EVs. So I think Australia, it seems to me, is already made decision to side with uh, the, the Western uh, economies and trying to diversify and trying to depart from uh, the old model, digging it, shipping it. Do you think Australia has made the decision or do you think between the business and the government a political argument in the country, this is normal in the democratic country, a different interest group, they, they always argue. Do you think this is an ongoing process or do you think it's also past the tipping point? The country, Australia, already made the decision. I don't think Australia has made the decision. I think it's an ongoing debate. And as you said, uh, in a democratic country and the, from policy to practice, there's a long way to go. And you can't just uh, force those um, um, critical mineral uh, miners to side with any country, China or US. So they actually, business is business. They need to consider where the, the, the return to, to the investment will come from. And, um, and the reality is, I mean, the, the, as I said, they will be able to build a, a, an alternative supply chain to uh, as a security to the um, potential disruptions of, uh, of, of global supply chains, but the, that will not be able to compete in terms of costs. Um, I appreciate that you have your opinion on whether the in the new energy um, um, sector that latecomers are developed countries that they can catch up. Of course, technologically they can. Uh, still, some some um, um, core patents actually are owned by um, the U.S. and J Japan and Korea. Uh, but as I argued in the book, demystify China's innovation innovation machine. I argued China's um, mass production uh, capacity. Uh, maybe 
not very original innovation oriented, but definitely provides enormous cost advantages in, in, in manufacturing. So that is itself very difficult for any other country at the moment to catch up. Um, Australian, I, I, I think the government is still, um, is still open for debate and, uh, and the government is planning to provide subsidies but that compares to the accumulated costs uh, China has put in is really a very, very small proportion. So that's that's not enough. So and fundamentally, business will consider about costs. Yeah, it seems to me that the China's comparative advantage is still there, still very strong. <laughs> still very strong, yes. Hey. Chinese has a, a large amount of overcapacity in all manufacturing um, areas. So... That's just the fact. Okay, overcapacity is not a big issue. And that's why uh, many argue the One Belt, One Road initiative was based on uh, transforming the, uh, China's vast um, manufacturing capacity abroad. But that's, I think uh, that strategy is now uh, declining. Can you, can you give us uh, uh, your comments? What about the One Belt, One Road initiative? Because many other, many countries, even uh, including Australia, already suspend the uh, partnership under this strategy between China and uh, uh, and the one province uh, of the country. So, do you think the this strategy from China uh, can still make sense in helping not only uh, high income but also low income countries uh, speeding up their energy transition? Well, put this way, um, one belt one road initiative uh, is more a political um, strategy. So um, in terms of real uh, economic benefits, it's not really that obvious yet, but that provides China an option of aligning with um, so-called, well, um, like-minded countries in Central Asia and in, in, uh, even in Africa or in, um, in the Middle East. So it's kind of a more developing world because as I said, since 2017, China's foreign investment in developed countries has declined substantially. And we can see, I mean, the, the, the encounters of TikTok, that's Bydance, and Tianqi Lithium uh, in Australia, and have all been uh, scrutinized by local, by, by host country politicians in the name of national security. Some are real, some are just imagined. So uh, China has to have this kind of alternative of building international relations with other countries. So this is typically um, a kind of, you know, I build relationships with, with somebody, I, they, they accept me, and that will give pressure to countries such as US. So this is all typical um, geopolitical competitions, um, but I don't think that is really um, making a lot of sense economically because China basically gives away a lot of money. Okay. In foreign aid and in, in loans and, and, and other forms. So I think I put my last question uh, about uh, China's potential response because we haven't talked about this uh, angle. You know, uh, China has the largest reserves of the rare earth in the world. The critical elements, rare earth, are also very necessary components for high-tech consumer products like our smartphones, screens, computers, and the clean energy equipment and the variety applications of the defense technology. So when China maybe uh, join this kind of restructuring, say, okay, if you control the upstream of the 
uh, lithium and others, what about I control the exports of the rare earth? China has absolute control over some component on the value chain of a rare earth processing. So that's, um, let's say, the permanent magnet. That's one of one of the products of rare earth elements. So uh, China controls over 90% that of that permanent magnet um, rare earth. So if China cuts off that, a lot of industries downstream, as you just mentioned, will suffer. But I don't think China will easily use this choke point strategy because the uh, uh, while China can inf can use this strategy to influence countries that rely on China's supply of rare earth components, uh, China itself will suffer because China so far we can see is, is the largest country that has benefited from the globalization. So China, I don't think China will easily use this rare earth as a cheap to leverage because it's far too dangerous. Uh, the reality is China relies on so many critical supplies which can become choke points. If the US-led partnership applies any of them, China will suffer more than any countries. So I, I just don't hope this scenario will happen because that will end the, uh, the even the current globalization and everybody will suffer. In terms of technology or investment or the uh, the energy transition, I really think uh, what we discussed today uh, really help uh, our audience to understand uh, in case that between Australia and China in terms of the lithium supply management and also the geopolitical competition between the big powers, how an independent economy like Australia made cope with this complex situation and what's the potential solution to develop some uh, more partnership which are uh, underestimated in the past due to China's uh, economy booming, uh, then maybe come back on the table. Uh, it's become more reliable, more uh, doable, uh, like the South Korea, and uh, like Japan. Uh, thank you again, Marina. It's, it's great pleasure to talk to you. Uh, as a routine, we uh, want to ask you, invite you to introduce a book uh, you feel very impressed with and you think worthy of recommending to our audience. Okay, so um, I mean, in the context of today's discussion, I uh, would recommend the book uh, written by Chris Miller, um, uh, The Cheap War. So initially, I was very suspicious about this book because uh, um, Miller is an histori historian and he doesn't have um, um, experience in chip making in the industry. So, um, and I personally really don't like the, uh, the metaphor of war in business, but uh, then I saw about it and after I read the book twice and I realized well he's not talking about war in metaphor actually he's talking about war in um, in reality so we are in the war for chips so um, uh, I recommend that book is is really very interesting and uh, the, the book is um, is providing a very geopolitical dimension of um, uh, of competition between the United States and China, and in in fact, the United States and and other uh, chip making countries, South Korea, and Japan, and Taiwan, um, over the past um, less than well, I mean, seventy years. So it's a good book. I I am very impressed. Well, the, the subtitle I just want to add uh, is the quest to dominate the world's most critical technology. So it's a definitely a very important field 
for us to look be uh, look the into the the bilateral relationship. And uh, thank you very much for recommending this this book. Thank you. All right.、Uh, thank you, Marina. It's a great pleasure to talk to you.、Uh, all the best. I hope we in the future will have chance to learn from your new、uh, researches. Thank you. Great pleasure.